Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 515 of the podcast and it is Saturday the 7th of November 2020 as I record this. So today I'm talking to Dan Parsons about networking for authors, how to make friends, sell more books and grow a publishing network from scratch. And of course, we talk about online networking as well as in person, because uh, yes, we're locked down again in the UK and most of us are not networking in person at the moment, but the world will change eventually. And uh, personally, I'm looking forward to networking in person again. I never thought I'd say that, but I am. (laughs) So we give lots of thoughts and tips on networking and uh, I wanted to reiterate the importance of the long-term mindset when it comes to networking, or in fact, everything about the author life. (laughs) I think if you have a long-term mindset, so much uh, becomes easier. That's probably true of the pandemic and everything. In fact, a long-term mindset really helps. And for networking, it is important because making friends and contacts at your level, whatever that is, trust me, over time, people who are just starting out, eventually they are not just starting out. They're a decade in and you're a decade in and you're both and you're all in different places. Yeah, I really enjoyed this chat with Dan and it's less of an interview, more of a discussion. We both share our tips, so I definitely enjoyed it. And of course, I'm an introvert. So even if you think, oh my goodness, I'm never going to do networking in inverted commas, I still have a listen because I think you'll find it interesting. Okay, so more on that in the interview section coming up. In publishing news, the very exciting thing this week is the new series creation and management tool on your Amazon KDP dashboard. So when you log in to um, kdp.amazon.com, you'll now see at the top there is this series section, but also on each book, you can alter where it is in a series. You can change the order of books, which everyone is super excited about because many authors have added in a 0.5, book 0.5 as prequel novella, something I'm considering doing, or they might add in a 4.5 at some other point. And lots of people want to change the order of their series. You can also add in related content, so short stories, maybe even box sets. And I think that this is going to be really good and will mean some great creative approaches. So for example, I have not considered writing short stories about some of my characters because I'm just like, it's very hard for them to get visibility. But if you can attach them as related content, that is very interesting. There's also a new series, also bought Carousel at the bottom of the series page. And this, everyone thinks they're going to introduce ads there, which of course they're bound to, but it's also good for target authors, for bookbub ads, Amazon ads. And I certainly was surprised at some of the authors that were on my series page. I was like, wow, I didn't even know about those authors. So I'm interested in uh, using those as uh, targets for my ads. 
I'm also encouraged that the series view has this drop down for the US store because the US store is the only store that has series pages right now. But now, but we've seen on that this drop down for country store happens when they add in other countries. So hopefully we will see series pages rolled out onto other territories. That would be fantastic. So that is good news and hopefully that will be useful to you. Drafter Digital has also introduced something useful this week, scheduled price changes. And I am doing that myself. I just got a BookBub um, featured deal for my Arcane box set number one. So I went in and used the Drafter Digital scheduled price change. And uh, I love that. That is something Kobo and Apple have had for ages, but the other stores make it really difficult. You normally have to go in, change the price and then go in after the promotion and change the price back again. But scheduling is great because it means you can just set and forget. And uh, so thanks to Drafter Digital for that. And talking of Drafter Digital, I was on their podcast. We actually talked earlier on in earlier this year and Kevin and I, Kevin Tumlison and I know each other um, from way back. (laughs) Conference fun. In fact, network Kevin would be in my network, I would say. And we talk about building the self-publishing future. We definitely have a bit of banter (laughs) and some fun as well as an interesting discussion. So you can check that out on draftadigital.com on their blog. Uh, There is a video. We did it in video and also it's on their podcast podcast feed. So that is there too. In useful stuff this week, Seth Godin's new book is The Practice, Shipping Creative Work. And I definitely, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the book. I think it's definitely if you're earlier on in your career I think it has a lot that will be useful it's similar to Do the Work by Stephen Pressfield which I particularly love and also Keep Going by Austin Cleon obviously both Steve and uh, Austin have been on the show (laughs) I haven't had Seth Godin on although he was on Writers Inc with Jay Thorns Seth has been doing a lot of interviews about the book but I think the book is mainly a reminder that the process is the work, not the outcome. And you can only control the work you do and not the result. So you can write your book, but you can't make it into a bestseller. You can't guarantee a movie deal. You have to detach yourself from the outcome. And he also talks about the importance of understanding your genre and serving your audience and committing to the craft. And this is a quote from the book. When we decide that the change we seek to make is dependent on mass popularity, we chase a hit. We end up sacrificing our point of view. The slide toward average sands off all the interesting edges, destroying energy, interest and possibility. It might be possible to please everyone, but courageous art rarely tries. And I really like this because I feel like there's these two tensions in the author space between everybody really would love, of course, to have a JK Rowling style hit and get a movie deal or whatever. But is mass market even possible anymore? I I don't think so. And related to this, I was I read an interview with Richard O'Brien this week on The Guardian, who created the Rocky Horror Show back in the 1970s. And what was so interesting is he said it was meant to have a three week run when he wrote that. And it's basically been running somewhere in the world for 50 years, which is incredible. And he said it in The Guardian, the quote was, the penny dropped that there was a life to this piece that we hadn't anticipated. And 
I just love reading these things because you can just imagine there's some great pictures if you uh, are my age ish <laughs> you can imagine what Richard O'Brien looks like when he was riff raff in in the movie and they were all just having fun in the 70s and he just wrote this thing and they they did it and then it became the film and then it just took on a life of its own. So creating the work but being detached from the outcome, it may be a, have this massive longevity as a hit or it may not do. You can't really control that. And I was thinking, I love Rocky Horror. I'm definitely up for a Rocky Horror sing-along party. Although I do remember being quite traumatised when I saw Jason Donovan as Frankenfurter in a live stage show in London. I think that must have been the early 2000s. So Jason Donovan was my teenage sweetheart in Neighbours, the Australian uh, soap. Maybe if you're my age, you also appreciate the attraction of Jason Donovan. <laughs> back in the day. And then he was doing his Frankenfurter thing and he definitely broke out of his sweet role. And those were fun times, certainly. And I shall look forward to doing the time warp on some conference dance floor sometime in 2021. (laughs) In fact, London Book Fair just announced an in-person event in June 2021. And I really hope we will be back out there by then because that would be fun. I also wanted, while we're talking about kind of craft and interesting craft stuff, I wanted to recommend The Queen's Gambit on Netflix, which I've really, I mean, it's beautiful. Uh, It's beautifully produced. It's a wonderful story. But, and I watch it, it's great to watch as entertainment. It's a really good story. But it's a perfect example of story structure. I knew exactly what was going to happen. And I could pick theme. I could see the character arc. I could just see how this classic story structure was going to work. And when a sort of, I'm not going to give any spoilers, but certain things happen. And I knew they were going, they had to happen. According to the rules of story, certain things had to happen. So you could say, oh, then it was predictable, but it was not predictable. What, Even though it fit a classic story structure with a classic character arc and what some would say the fatal flaw, the character flaw was, oh, it's been done before. Yes, it has. But what made it original and compelling is the character is unusual. The setting is original. This is a female chess player. And the world of chess, you might think, oh, well, I'm not interested in chess. You will be when you watch it. It's a bit like it's a bit like the TV show Cheer, which we also watched earlier in the pandemic. There's been a lot of TV this year, obviously. But Cheer, m- my husband was like, I'm not interested in watching cheerleading. And I'm like, uh, I don't particularly like cheerleading either, but it's got great reviews. So we watched it. And by the end of it, you're like, yeah, I'm really into cheerleading. <laughs> it's the same with this world of chess. If you have have a original character in a setting that's unusual and you can still use classic story structure to create a perfect story. So I have bought the book because I'm interested to know whether the author originally wrote a perfect story or whether the screenwriter and the producer adapted it in such a way that it became this perfect story but they got everything right seriously and the ending is as it should be it satisfies everything you need and definitely well worth watching especially we've talked this year we've had podcast episodes on story structure character flaws and so you can watch the queen's gambit as a masterclass in story but you can also watch it for entertainment and talking about a masterclass. 
in useful stuff as well. Remember, you can get the fantastic bundle of ebooks for authors if you haven't got it yet. It is available still as I record this. Storybundle.com forward slash nano, N A N O. Whether you are doing NanoWriMo or not, this is a great bundle. It includes Stop Worrying, Start Writing, How to Overcome Fear, Self Doubt, and Procrastination by Sarah Painter, which is a great book. Turning Setbacks into Opportunities by Christine Catherine Rush, something we all need from 2020. Killer Subject Lines on Email Marketing from Andrea Pearson. 13 Steps to Evil from Sasha Black. Nifty 15 from Honoré Corder. Write your book in 15 minutes a day. Plus my own book, Audio for Authors, which is about podcasting, audiobooks and voice technologies. I've had a few people think that Audio for Authors is just about audiobooks, but no. In fact, that's only about a third of the book and then about half of the book is on podcasting and then there's also voice technologies. Plus uh, you can get a course in that bundle from Dean Wesley Smith on how your business can survive the downturn. Basically 15 ebooks and a course for a pay what you like deal. This is a really good bundle at storybundle.com forward slash nano n-a-n-o. So in my personal update, obviously I've been watching some TV, we went back into lockdown here in the UK. So I had a few social days before they locked us all down, like everybody, everybody did. Everyone was out. It was one of those classic situations, obviously wearing masks and social distancing, but catching up with people before uh, we got locked down again. And then the obvious period of rage and misery, which happens (laughs) inevitably when things uh, when you have to get back in your box, as I, I feel I'm back in my box. and uh, But then I thought I'll just knuckle under to a new project. So I'm still waiting for Tree of Life to come back from my proofreader. And I need to obviously use finishing energy to publish that. But And I still need time to sit with my pilgrimage trip. I'm not ready to write about that. And I'm feeling discombobulated and all the things. So I decided to do a short non-fiction book. That is probably the best thing to do when you're discombobulated is just get some work done that you can spend your time on that does not necessarily emotionally wrench you apart, which is what tends to happen with fiction. So I am turning your author business plan course into a short book and workbook with the aim of having that turned around quite quickly since I've got nothing else to do but work. (laughs) And I want to have that ready for at least the second, you know, the second half of December. So hopefully it will be ready. It needs to be ready before the new year because it will be your author business plan. Of course, you can do a business plan anytime. It doesn't have to be the new year, but I want to get it done. So just, and I wanted to comment on the process because turning a course into a book is not just about editing the transcripts. It is a different type of product. And the course is chatty with lots of asides as I tell stories and things. And I talk more about my personal experience. And I also have a lot of visuals on the video course because it's a video course. And I can't, of course, you can't do that in a book. Uh, But the work is keeping me occupied and stopping me obsessing and doom scrolling. And uh, as I record this, the US election is still not quite in the bag. So it has been a weird week (laughs) in general. And once I get probably by next week, I'll have put up a pre-order on it. So if you're interested, if you are on my author business plan course, you'll get the ebook as part of that and also the workbook as a PDF. So don't worry if you're on the course, you'll you will get that. Also, Map of Shadows is now available as an audiobook everywhere except Audible. (laughs) And this is unsurprising considering my German book, Mindset 
I can't say it in uh, German. So my mindset book in German has been in their queue for five months and I'm still going back and forth with the help desk. Map of Plagues is on the way and hopefully Map of the Impossible before Christmas as well. So if you're interested in those fantasy novels, they are on the way. So that's cool. Thanks for your emails and tweets and comments this week. Amy's listening while making a lovely halva from an Ottolenghi recipe. And I love Ottolenghi. And in fact, I, one of his restaurants, Noppy, is one of my favourite in London. And I normally go there at Christmas time. So I really hope that can happen this year. KJ Del Antonia said, adored your interview with Wendy Jones. She made me smile on a tough day and got me excited about getting down to work. Fantastic. Heather C. Button said, thanks for asking Wendy about writing and faith, how she draws the distinction between the two. It was enlightening. And uh, Robin Sarti also said, thanks for asking about writing as a Christian. Her answer is exactly how I feel, but not able to articulate. So I'm glad that was useful. Uh, I do try and continue to ask the questions that I think will be useful for you guys. That is my goal with my interviews. It's really to try and make them the most useful thing for you. And Daniel Sewell or Sule said, just listen to the amazing Wendy H. Jones on the podcast. It's a wonderful, no-nonsense, uplifting author interview. It made me miss Scotland and strangely interested in buffaloes. Yes, I think we could all use a buffalo plushie at the moment. (laughs) Anyway, you can tweet me at the creative pen with a double N, leave a comment on the show notes, or you can leave a YouTube comment or email me, joanna at thecreativepen.com to let me know what you think or send me a picture of where you're listening in from. And I had quite a few awesome graveyard shots this week. Thanks to everyone who continues to send those in. I, I really enjoyed those. So today's show is sponsored by Pro Writing Aid, writing and editing software that goes way beyond just grammar and typo checking. And I use it several times now in my editing process. So I use it when before I send the manuscript to my editor, then I do my rewrites and then I run it through ProWriting Aid again before sending to my proofreader. Now, why is it so great? We all have our writing issues. Even if you've read all the books on grammar and you have got that into your head, uh, you will still find, you will still miss things, in fact, when you're writing. ProWriting Aid helps me particularly pick up passive language, which is something we could all improve, and comma usage, which I still struggle with. It's a bit of a game now for me when I'm I now am trying to learn with every pass, why would this place have a comma and why should that not be a comma? And I'm trying to get better and better, but it's a bit like like a game for me now. (laughs) We all use tools to help us become better at the craft. And I certainly learn something every time I put my writing through ProWritingAid. It has other suggestions for improvement, like sentence length variation and complexity, adverbs, repeated words, which are inevitable for all of us, and also weak words. I find that useful too. You can even use the Word Explorer to go beyond the thesaurus to find more appropriate language. You can do things like change curly quotes to straight quotes and make things consistent. You can also check typos by language, for example, US English versus UK English. Plus, very excitingly, you can use ProWritingAid with Scrivener. 
And this is just fantastic because that's how I use it before sending it to my editor. I do, I open it within, I open my Scrivener project with ProWritingAid and do the changes there. So I don't have to copy and paste my chapters, which is what I used to do with another piece of software. (laughs) So it has uh, incredibly powerful features, but it's also easy to use. I wanted to say that because my mum, who writes as Penny Appleton, who is in her 70s and she's pretty tech phobic, but I introduced her to ProWritingAid and she loves it. Uh, She just uses it all the time and she writes with dictation and is very enthusiastic with exclamation marks. (laughs) So pre-writing aid really helps get her drafts in shape. So you can check out the free edition or get 25% off the premium edition by using my link prowritingaid.com forward slash Joanna, J-O-A-N-A. And I've also done a tutorial on how I use it at thecreativepen.com forward slash prowritingaid tutorial. So check that out. This type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing, but my time in creating the show is sponsored by my patrons. Thanks to everyone supporting the show on Patreon. It means so much to me and continues to mean more to me all the time as uh, as I've talked about as I move into another year. <laughs> as long I think as long as I'm useful, I will keep doing this show. Like I think that's how I feel now. It's if this is useful, I will do it. If it's not, I will stop. And uh, yeah, you guys on Patreon certainly make me feel like this is useful. So thanks to new and returning patrons this week, Lottie Clark, Emmeline Ebright or Ebright, Glenn Savory and Dean Klinkenberg. And uh, also thanks to Dean, who's coming on the Books and Travel podcast this week to talk about the Mississippi River Valley, which uh, is a great interview that's out on the Books and Travel show this week. So I really appreciate your support on Patreon. It demonstrates you enjoy the show and want it to continue. You can support the show with just a couple of dollars a month and you get the extra monthly Q&A, which I will definitely be doing soon. (laughs) And uh, you'll get the entire backlist as well. And you'll also get 10% off my courses. And you can support the show at patreon.com forward slash the creative pen. Let's get into the interview. Dan Parsons is a fantasy and horror author who also writes nonfiction. His latest book is Networking for Authors, How to Make Friends, Sell More Books and Grow a Publishing Network from Scratch. Welcome, Dan. Thanks for having me, Joanna. Oh, it's great to have you on the show. So first up, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing and publishing. Okay, so I've got eight books, so two under the Dan Parsons pen name, which is nonfiction. And I've got six under my fiction pen name, which is Daniel Parsons. So I wasn't too creative for that one. I've always been a a creative person. I started writing when I was just about a teenager, maybe even before that. So I tried to write five novels as a teenager, failed, never got to the end. And then on novel six, I finally um, finished one. Um, It was never published. I call it my training wheels novel. So uh, I shopped it around some agents while I was doing my English degree in uni and got some encouraging feedback. I think I sent it to uh, 16 agents and then three wanted the full manuscript, which I thought was quite encouraging at the time. But it just took so long. When it came to the final year of uni, I decided just to try and self-publish a novella. So that was in 2013. And it went fairly well. I made every single mistake I could have possibly made. And it didn't sell very well, but it was such a good experience that I decided not to go back to traditional publishing unless the deal was good enough. 
just because I'm, I'm the type of person I really enjoy the control of it and I enjoy most aspects from the marketing to the distribution and, and everything else that comes with it. In terms of day jobs, I've been a bookseller for two different companies. So I've, I've been a manager of a small independent bookshop and I've also been a supervisor at a national chain. So I've had the, the both sides of the coin on that one and got a bit of uh, perspective from there. And I've worked for three traditional publishing companies. So they were all fairly small companies, but two specialised in fiction. And then the third one that I still work at now is a, a non-fiction publishing company. But yes, yeah, it's, it's, I've had a very diverse range of jobs. So I've done editing. I've tried my hand at cover design, but it's not my talent. Yeah, I've done production and distribution and, and sort of everything you could possibly ask someone to do in the industry. And we are talking about other things, but I am fascinated because you just said, I, I decided not to do traditional publishing unless it was a really good deal. And you work within the traditional industry. <laughs> so is this something you talk about with your traditional publishing work colleagues or how do you reconcile both worlds? Yeah, so it, it became a little bit tense at one point in one of the companies I, I used to work at, purely because they, they were fine with me self-publishing while I was working in a publishing team. And in fact, my old boss is now my editor. So it's worked out very well. But yeah, I did get a traditional publishing contract with them while I worked for them and then pulled out of the contract, which is a little bit tense in the office. <laughs> but it went well in the long term. We decided that it was probably for the best because when you're in the room and you can see other people's books being scheduled ahead of yours and you're chomping at the bit wanting to get onto yours. It was a, a huge conflict, uh, conflict of interest when I knew that I was going to eventually be promoting my own book. Mm. And I think the big disagreement I had at the time was that traditional publishers, they typically, in my experience at least, want to sell every book as in paid units. So they're not too interested in giving away a lot for exposure in the early days to build an audience. Um, and I was really looking into things like BookBub featured deals, free giveaways and things like that, which I couldn't really do with a traditional publishing contract because they didn't want to give any books away. Mm. So, yeah, it was it was fun and it's given me lots of experience. My covers, my proofreader and my editor all come from traditional publishing because I was in an office with them. But, yeah, it, it's not something I'd go back to unless it was a big enough deal that I could, I could be happy with not looking at things and checking all how everything's done myself. It's great then because you and you currently still your day job is in a traditional publisher in a non-fiction house. Yeah, it's it's not quite traditional publishing in the sense that you would think of it, though. They're not they're not doing sort of manuals for that authors have written. It's in-house writers and they don't take on any clients and things. The previous two were. But yes, yeah, I jump in between lots of different publishing models, which is which is interesting. It is interesting. And I actually think that you represent more of what the industry looks like now, which is a sort of hybrid approach to publishing yeah. in that many of us, I sign publishing deals, foreign rights deals, authors sign contracts with traditional publishers around different formats, maybe the hardback editions or maybe the audio editions. So what we're living in now is not an either or world. It is a what is best for the project, what is best for the author, the publisher uh, and the situation and, and things. So I really like that you have that career, but let's get into your book. So today we're really talking about networking for authors. So let's start with the sort of basics because I really feel like people get networking a bit mixed up in their brains. So what is networking anyway and why is it so important for an author career? Okay so networking I think in terms of authors that are fairly new to the industry it's a very different concept to anyone in any other industry apart from maybe music and places like that where I think 
early on, maybe sort of 15, 20 years ago, traditionally published authors or new authors that were trying to get into traditional publishing would have seen networking as trying to be picked up. So you'd be at events, there'd be authors doing readings, they'd have agents and, and publicists and things with them, and you'd be trying to schmooze in amongst them to try and get yourself picked up. And I think that's that's problematic because when you look at any other industry or if you talk to the traditional publishers themselves, they would say that networking isn't so much about being picked up. It's about becoming the person that can pick others up. So you're building a business where you have the stability and the power and things like that, which you don't really get if you're going from deal to deal where you're essentially working with middlemen. And there's nothing wrong with middlemen if they add lots of value to your, your business. But when they put you in a very precarious environment where if you get dropped on the next deal you've got no connections to carry on with then that's not always great especially for the indie model now where you're in traditional publishing it's it's very much you're either a a bestseller or you're not going to get republished I think it was possibly different a few years ago where publishers would invest in an author's career whereas now not so much so realistically you want to be building your own network so that you're even if you want to go in traditional publishing, you'll still have indie contacts and you'll know distributors and publishers. And if you wanted to go to conferences and meet people at BookBub or Publish Drive or anything like that, it's still useful to have those people on hand so that you can A, work in collaboration with a publisher and B, move on to do things yourself if the publisher doesn't want to be involved. So it just gives you a lot more stability. I I think for me still networking is about relationships and more peer relationships. I, I think it's really important to remember that the people you meet along the way can be something completely different in years to come. You're a good example there of someone who's moving and shaking in the industry, but equally has an author career. And you can meet someone at an author event, not really knowing what they do in their day job and dismiss them easily enough, whereas actually they might be someone. So I think it's really about being interested in who people are and not thinking I must network with the most important person in the room. So I've seen authors do that. So that's one of the mistakes I've seen. But what are some of the other mistakes that authors make with networking? Yeah, what you say is absolutely true. I've seen the herd mentality when a huge author walks into a room and initially the people that spot them will, will sort of clock them and start shuffling in their direction. And then even the people who don't know them start walking towards them because they feel like they should know them, yeah. even if they're not relevant. They, somebody might be a thriller author and a, and a fantasy author and they, their genres don't cross over. They might not really have a lot in common in terms of networks and things and they couldn't add value to each other. But because they're a big name, people it's, it's always nice to get the selfie with the, the massive author, but it, it's not always going to be the best networking tactic. Now, in terms of mistakes that I've seen people make, there are lots and lots of practical mistakes. If you wanted to talk about going to physical networking events, then you could talk about not booking a hotel, which I've done in the past, where I've travelled from 4am Cardiff to London for the London Book Fair, turned up sweaty and befuddled about five hours later. And it's, it's been horrific where I'm so tired by the time I get there that I think, oh, I would have been better off. There's a reason why businesses fly their employees business class and get them hotels and things so they're fresh and they can work to their their optimum capacity you're at your most likable when you're comfortable Mm. so if you're going to be networking then you don't want to be panicked and carrying lots of bags that you should have been leaving in a hotel room and things like that in terms of more general uh mistakes that i've done and seen i suppose because a lot of these are things that i've learned by getting them wrong are things like touching on subjects that maybe you'd speak to friends or family about, personal friends from outside of publishing on social media 
that you wouldn't really want to be talk, talking to people in the industry about. And it's not even something too controversial that obviously you never bring politics and things into it. Or if you're, if you're having a bad day, you, you, you'd never walk up on stage at a conference and rant about the fact that you're having a bad day. And yet people do it quite a lot uh, on social media. And that's a way to alienate people who might have wanted to work with you in the past because they see that if you're a little bit of a loose cannon, then even if you've had a really good first impression at a conference, now that they've connected with you on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, if you're you're posting things that are potentially going to make them look bad by association, then they distance themselves from you. So that's a classic mistake. Um, and then there's the selling. So uh, this happens in person and on the internet. If you add someone as a friend on Facebook, for example, some new authors who don't know really what they're doing and again I've done this when I first started on Twitter if they're having a free giveaway or something like that they will just send direct messages to everyone on their contact list saying will you please download my book right now will you sign up to my mailing list things like that which it's weird because if you're trying to sell books to the people that you should be considering friends and talking to because Mm -hmm. they're not necessarily your readers they're your peers as you mentioned so yeah there are just so many things that they're not offensive in the in terms of you're not going to make enemies this way but it's just it's the the signs of someone who doesn't quite know what they're doing yet and they haven't learned the lesson that those tactics a don't work and b could actually work against them yeah and actually you mentioned like london book fair or obviously i speak at things and people will say here's take my print book And even if you're interested in a book, the last thing anybody wants, because books are heavy, the last thing that people want is, especially at something like a book fair, is more print books. Like people definitely do not want that. So what I suggested people are going to physical events is sure, have a couple of print books in your bag, but don't be like handing them out willy nilly because also being English and you're Welsh, (laughs) people... People can be polite and say, oh, uh, thank you and accept the book, but it's going to be left in a bin or a hotel room because people can't travel with it. I was in America last year and people, I I had 20 books that people (laughs) gave me and even books that I had bought to get authors signed. This is one of my, I don't know if I've said this before on the podcast, (laughs) but basically if I buy, if I meet an author that I really love and I get the the first page signed because of flying everywhere I literally will tear out that page and leave the book and just keep the page (laughs) there's a dirty little secret of of my print books but yeah what else was I going to say what do you think about physical appearance because I feel like you have to make some effort to look presentable but equally we are creatives in a creative industry so we're not saying oh wear a suit to uh, a a networking event so where do you think the line is when it comes to creatives and and authors in particular with authors in particular it it tends to be more whatever you feel comfortable in like I, I mentioned the point about if you feel comfortable you're more likable and things like that it's you can traditionally tell what section of the industry people work in based on how they dress so if you see traditional publishers there are a lot of blazers and ties and things like that and then you go to author areas and everyone's sort of more casually dressed I think if you're speaking then you might want to brush up a little bit just because you're on stage and you want to look as if you're someone who has it all together but other than that I don't think it really matters that much if anything like I said you're trying to build a business so if you walk into the room and you're thinking like an interviewee and you're trying to make everyone happy 
then you're not necessarily going to be selling yourself particularly well, even if you're dressed very well. I don't want to use the word desperation, but there's, yeah. <laughs> uh, whereas if you're going there and you're thinking like, what value can I pro- provide you, but mm. also what value can you provide me? The people are equally trying to impress you, so the, it takes the pressure off you a little bit and, and that everyone can dress as they want, really, because it's the results that matter and not physical appearance. Mm. I do feel like I want to wear certain... Uh, clothes when I go to events I think because I'm an introvert and because I it's almost if you put on a bit of a uniform or something where you know I'm going into this situation to do my job so right now I'm talking to you and I'm wearing a t-shirt and jeans and I might wear a t-shirt and jeans but as you say I might wear a blazer or I might wear a t-shirt with something specific on or I often wear a dress if I'm speaking or something but I do think if people are nervous which let's face it most of us are nervous and anxious we'll come back to that in a minute but for me it really helps to put on a persona a bit like I it just helps with your confidence but the other thing that helps and I was going to ask you about this is to prepare in advance like you mentioned there don't just walk in and expect to beg people but know in advance who you're going to talk to so the pre-event preparation like I'll always try and um, look at the people who are going if there's a list find their twitter handles for example go stalk them so what are some of the things (laughs) that people can do in advance of of an event to make it the best thing Okay, so there are lots of things, really. Like you said, you touched on it with finding people's Twitter handles. Often, events will have hashtags associated with them that are set up by the the company that is providing the event. And if you look on that hashtag, you'll find lots of excited messages from people who are going. And you can actually dip into their profiles and see who they are so that you can recognise them on the day. Now, I'm not saying that everyone looks exactly like the profile picture because people have cartoon profile pictures and things like that. People have got pen names and there's all this confusing stuff that goes on in our industry. But yeah, you can definitely check out what is going to be going on and where people are going to be just by looking at the commentary on things like that. Another big one is in Facebook groups. Usually an event will set up a a group on Facebook and you can dip in. I know the last time I went to London, which was an event that you spoke at actually, it was Mark Dawson's one with the boat. And yeah, so I set up a, a group chat um, on Facebook with authors that I've met in the past because I think that maintaining relationships is just as important mm. as building new ones. So I knew people who had been there a year or two previously, and even if I didn't know if they were going, because I know it's an event, it's an event that's close to them and that they go to frequently, I just messaged them and said, are you guys all going here? Um, would you like to go for a coffee at this time of day? We went to some fancy Skyrise restaurant and all that type of stuff. Mm. So yeah, there are all these things that you can set up in advance that that, that can work in your favour. It, it just means that you're not walking into a room full of strangers because you've actually locked in advance and there's going to be at least one person who recognises you if you've spoken to them. So usually we, we do that. And I know the SPF community have got quite a big sort of drinks thing that they do. Ally have got a similar thing that they do. So it's good to at least look for the organiser, that the person who's actually in charge of the event, because generally organisers are very approachable. Like I know when I went to an Ally event a few years ago, the first person I walked up to was Orna Ross because I recognised her from things. And she was also uh, very gracious and able to direct me to, to people that... I was very excited to meet. So I know I mentioned at the time that Adam Croft was supposed to be at the party I went to and he just hit number one in the universe above J.K. <laughs> Rowling. So I was, I was going, oh my God, Adam Croft is you. And she went, I know him. And then just pulled me through the walkway and said, Adam, meet Dan. So mm. this is one of those things where 
just knowing the organizer can often break barriers where you would be surreptitiously pretending to read a newspaper in the corner, trying to get closer to the people you want to talk to. Um, they will just punch straight through that wall for you and, and introduce you. So there's all these little sort of tricks and tips that can get you into conversations faster. And it just makes it a lot more fun when people know you when you walk into the room, mm. because it's going to your local bar and you're running into friends rather than having to introduce yourself to every single person yeah and it's a good tip you mentioned the maintaining these relationships and something that I think is really good is going to the same conference year after year so London Book Fair I've been going to since 2012 2020 obviously pandemic it didn't happen (laughs) but and Thriller Fest in New York I've been to like four or five times and Crime Fest here in the UK in Bristol and if you go to the same conference which is usually at the same hotel so knowing the place physically is really important I feel uh, often I'll go to a room before an event starts to see where would be the best place to sit where do you, where can I see the screen where if I if there's someone I want to meet at that particular session for example if you want to meet a, meet a speaker at a session you really need to sit near the front especially if you want to yeah. get up and and meet them as they come off the stage or something so I, I feel like knowing the layout but also if you go to the same event you year on year the same conference you will get to know people and the first year you might just feel really shy and terrible and you're just like oh my goodness that was just a nightmare what happens is you will meet some people you will you absolutely you'll meet the shy people in the corner if nothing else and then (laughs) next year when you go back people will recognize you as you said it's you're not a stranger anymore and what happens the second year is there are people there for the first time and this and in terms of let's talk about icebreakers because and dealing with anxiety so for me my thing is what what kind of books do you write like literally I will ask that question or I might say if it is the first time I'll be like oh it's my first time at this conference do you usually come to the conference and then either they'll say uh, yes it's my first time and then you have something in common or they say no I come regularly and then you can ask them for their tips so that is a good thing ask them questions and enable them to help you I think so any other tips for anxious and shy introvert people or, or anything like that on the long term maintenance side as well yeah, so at, at all levels of networking, I think people have got different comfort zones and some people are extroverts and they could happily breeze into a room and make friends with everybody. Other people are more confident online, whereas as some people are not particularly technically capable, even with social media. Some people, it's just not their thing. So I think that, I think you've mentioned as well recently that online conferences are just as nerve wracking as a speaker as one oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, in the real world. So yeah, nerves are normal. I know most people um, I've spoken to where if they're, if they're speaking, that's a universal thing, that they have the anxiety and the butterflies pacing and all the rest of it. What you can do is just gradually work out of your comfort zone. So if online networking is the thing that you want to start with, then that's fine. Start with that. I know a lot of people uh, who call themselves lurkers tend to be in Facebook groups and things, but never really post anything. You can start out that way. Just watch, see what other people are doing, often modelling yourself on the type of influencer or the type of author you want to be is the best way to go forward. So you can see what everybody's doing. You don't have to always know everything. I know even people at the top of the industry, they still don't know everything and they're learning all the time. So sometimes you can actually um, start networking by asking questions rather than providing value. And sometimes those questions do provide as much value as giving answers. To give an example, I've been in a Facebook group for now where I've asked 
very early on. I'm seeing all of these acronyms. Can anyone put a catalogue of acronyms in the comments of this post? <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I think the organisers of the group saw about, you know, 90 comments where these all these, you know, BookBub and AMS and all these sorts of different acronyms. And then they started channeling new new arrivals to that post and it makes the person who put the post in the first place look like an authority figure because they've now got their name attached to this big encyclopedia of knowledge but yeah you can work out that way and then eventually when you become more established and you know what you're doing you can start providing answers and things like that and then if you want to move to real life meetings then you can do the same again. You don't have to be volunteering to speak. And I know, I think it's particularly Canadians uh, who are really into uh, the karaoke stuff and all that. You don't have to be going and, and doing karaoke. What I've found is that introverts kind of gra- uh, gravitate towards each other on occasion. So just because you're you're not in the, the sort of the biggest, loudest groups, you can still meet people who are just as interested. And sometimes the, the quietest person in the room is also the most influential Mm. And they've just got different personas where, you know, they might be able to run a huge online campaign that makes them seem like a huge celebrity. But then when you actually see them in person, they're a much quieter person. They've just got this persona that they they put on when they when they're talking to their million YouTube subscribers or something. So I I think it's just a, a matter of scaling up very slowly, staying within your comfort zone to a degree and then as you become more comfortable with things you can keep going so like just I think it was six months ago I did my first podcast interview now I've been meaning to do podcasts for about two years but it's just one of those things where you keep putting it to the back of your to-do list because you're thinking oh I'll get round to it and I have I don't have an issue with it but realistically you do it was only because I was invited to a podcast that I started doing that because once you've done one, it becomes much easier. Mm. Um, and I think people are like that with with going to networking events and putting themselves out there. It's a comfort zone thing and you gradually expand it. And it's actually funny you mentioned podcasting. I really started this podcast in order to network because I was living in Brisbane, Australia back in 2006, 2007, 2008. And I didn't know anyone. I was working in a a mining company. I didn't know any authors. And in fact, the only author's stuff that was around in Brisbane at the time was very traditional publishing focused. I didn't, I I went along to them and I just felt really uncomfortable because I knew I was going down the indie route before it was trendy. And so I started the podcast so I could talk to Americans because the Americans were where the dominant and still are really the dominant voices in the indie movement. And so I and I thought if I can talk to people online for half an hour, 45 minutes, then I'll get to know them. And many of those people who I've never met in person have become friends because of the podcast. I know, I think many podcasters start because they want to network and it's quite good for an introvert. But also wanted to ask about the long-term thinking because I feel like people go, um, oh, I'm going to this networking thing. I must achieve something in that meeting or I must achieve whatever it is. And they rush things and they over they put an overemphasis on this one event. Whereas in my experience, it can sometimes take a long time to feel comfortable. So why is this long-term thinking so important with networking? Okay, essentially, it takes a long time to build up a reputation. What you might want to do early on is, I think my first goal, the first year I went to London Book Fair, because I've been, it would have been seven times, I've been six now, was I just wanted to meet one person from any publishing area that I didn't know before. And I ended up meeting two or three. Now, it, it might not have been the people that I set out to meet, but often what you find is when you go to these events, you 
imagine yourself partying with the rock stars of the industry and immediately being in the inner circle <laughs> and all this type of stuff. And that necessarily, it, it can happen, but it doesn't necessarily happen every time. And for most people, it doesn't. I think that for that first year, I, I met, like I said, two or three people and they were people that I, I may not have even known from online. You just bump into them, you're buying, buying a breakfast roll or something while you're waiting for a talk to start and you just strike up a conversation and, and then it builds. What you do notice, though, is that it, it compounds over time. You start off adding one or two people to your network and they might be completely new as well. So they don't really have any contacts. But then eventually someone will will meet someone who will rec- be recommended to you. And then people start messaging you saying, do you have any tips and advice for this or whatever you've done in the past? And then over time, you get to a, a position where you turn up in group events and somebody goes, I know you, or they, they call you out from across the room. And it's someone that you've never met. It's just all of these. It's one of those things where the I've forgotten the saying now, the whole is more than the sum of the parts where it does. It very quickly grows. And this is something that I call the seven touches of cross selling, but for networking. Mm. So a bit like with marketing, people don't necessarily buy a product the first time they see it. They might see or hear about it seven times or probably more because of the internet now before they actually buy it. And it's a little bit like that where you might have to introduce yourself to seven people before you get one contact, uh, like a, a proper contact that will end up collaborating with you or something like that. And then those contacts will start talking to each other in some uh, Rotary Club meeting or something like that. And before you know it, they're, you're popping up in conversations where you're not involved um, so it becomes this monster where it continuously grows. So, yeah, it's one of those things where if you think about long term focus, it helps both mm. in the short term and the long term, because the motivation, whether well, you've got to look at serendipity. So you're always thinking, I need to be on my A game because this next event I go to could be the one where I meet someone and it's, you get a contract or something and it changes your life. But also, if it doesn't work, then you've learned something from that experience and you can come to the next event with more knowledge and you won't make the same mistakes again. So you're sort of giving yourself armour for that particular event and giving yourself hope for the future to keep yourself going. Like I've been doing this seven years now. And uh, when I started, I didn't really know anyone in the industry and now, like I said, I can quite happily talk to most people when I go to the London Book Fair because that's my most frequented event. And usually your sort of experience level, your ability and your sales increase with it. And then every time you hit a new milestone, you catch the eye of more prominent people in the industry and then it snowballs. Mm. Yeah, it is interesting. I do think long term thinking as well is because everyone's if people either people disappear and plenty of people have disappeared in the sort of 12 years I've been doing this but the people who've stuck around like the people I met in the beginning or the people you have long-term relationships with like Orna Ross you mentioned who I met before she started the alliance and on Twitter all the years ago and someone like Mark Lefebvre who I met as when he was at Kobo first and over the years like we've done karaoke together and good friends I was actually just talking to him before this but it, it's interesting how like you say, the compounding, it's just human relationships. You don't get a human relationship from immediately meeting someone and handing them your book. Like it just doesn't happen. So I think that's 
say human relationships are are the thing but let's um you mentioned what's funny you mentioned touches there and of course we're living in a pandemic as we record this <laughs> there's no touching going on anywhere um, poor, choice. <laughs> poor choice yeah no I get what you mean in the marketing sense but this is interesting around networking and when the pandemic started I thought oh everything online is completely fine because I'm an introvert. I can do online. I'm not interested. I I think this will replace physical events. And I think a lot of people thought that. And then we all got Zoomed out within about a month. Like I was seeing my family on Zoom all the time. And I was like, do you know what? This is just not good. I went to a couple of completely online conferences. And then I realized this is not sustainable. It's not sustainable from, you know, the point of view of just your energy but also you're not these zoom rooms where you can supposedly network just don't work in my opinion so I wondered what do you what have you seen during the pandemic that has worked has not worked and what do you think is going to change in terms of networking okay I think that there's going to be some sort of fallout with people who don't want to go back to networking initially because obviously there's fallout with people not wanting to go back to day jobs and things like that because of this inherent fear that we will have to phase out over time. Having said that, when I saw the 20 Bucks guys um, announce the Madrid holiday that might be coming up soon, lots of people got very excited about that. So I, I think... Once again, it's one of those things that once you break the barrier of doing something, once lockdown is lifted and all the rest of it, I I think we'll very quickly get back into the swing of going to conferences and things like that. What I have noticed, though, is that as a result of lots and lots of people having to embrace the technology that does things like this, I know you've been using this sort of technology for years and lots of podcasters have, but I was relatively new to it. I was just ahead of the curve because, like I said, I started getting into podcasts and then lockdown happened. So I just got the technology down before it all kicked off. But I think because it's become so ever-present now, it's made this, what's the word I'm looking for? So it's, it's a virtual ab- abundance, okay? The idea behind that is that there will be a lot more authors who can network on a more face-to-face basis now who couldn't have in the past. There's the idea of the long tail with publishing and all the rest of it. And I think this is going to be very similar where right now there are a few privileged authors, myself included, who can travel to events because they're close enough to big events that you can see some of the dominant players in the industry and you can afford to take a few days off work if you've got a day job still and, and go and things like that. But a lot of authors can't. They can't take that time out of their out of their life and go and do this. So they miss out on these sort of interpersonal relationships. With everyone now using things like Skype and Zoom and and, and all these other video conferencing apps. I think this is going to become a, a sort of middle ground for the people who can't afford to go to conferences, but they still want these closer relationships. Mm. I know since lockdown happened, I've joined a writer's circle, which I, I never used to go to a writer's circle because I'd rather just go to conferences if and when they happen. But now I've got a, a bi-monthly writer's circle that I, I go to and we all push each other along. Uh, we've got an accountability board in a Facebook group where everyone's goals are written down for the next two weeks and then we all ask how everyone's goals have gone for the last two weeks when we meet and it's become a much more community driven thing that you don't always get with these you know huge Facebook groups or on Twitter where there are so many thousands of people involved that you get lost Mm. whereas if you're in a group of six or eight authors and you know that you meet every two weeks and you start to learn bits of people's lives you can do house tours on camera and all that type of stuff so yeah I think there's going to be this middle ground where this is going to be there are going to be a lot more opportunities for authors who can't do this. Do I think there'll be more 
events in the future, online and offline. I think there'll be both. I just think that A, there's going to be this middle ground and B, there are probably going to be a lot more creative outdoor opportunities in the meantime. So I know obviously there's people who trek and, and who go out to beaches and things like that. And I think there's going to be a lot more of that because people feel safer if you can socially distance and you're outdoors while networking. So I think that's going to be a bit of a, a craze in the meantime until things go back to normal, hopefully if things go back to normal. The, the new normal, I think you're right about the hybrid approach. I think a lot of conferences who didn't have a digital streaming option probably will now add a digital ticket anyway because yeah. they've seen that they can make money from a digital ticket that perhaps they wouldn't have done before. So there are benefits for being there in person. There are benefits from being able to access recorded material, stuff like that. So I think you're right. I think it's going to be more of a hybrid type of approach and which kind of brings us back to the publishing world and your career. And so the final question really is having worked in the publishing industry, sitting across authors, publishers, booksellers and seeing the way things are going, what are your thoughts on the changes that are going on, a lot of changes like the digital acceleration that's happened with lockdown and the virus. And how can authors continue to empower themselves? Okay, so there are a few things that you can do as an author to empower yourself. First of all, you can, if you don't want to necessarily head a big event, you can always do a, a sort of subsidiary event that I found a lot of people do when you go, when you go to conferences and things like that. And this is something you can do in smaller pockets in your area if you can't travel and things like that rather than having these huge conferences that I know people become influencers off the back of the fact that they organize these huge things and everyone wants to know them. You can just create these small group chats. You can meet up with people and things like that. And I think that's going to keep your network sort of burning along in the meantime. I think as the industry develops, like you said, there's a lot of turnover in the industry. So as, as much as there are people who skyrocket and they do really well sometimes they, they they disappear and a lot of other people who start off disappear very quickly when they don't get the results they want so i think if you want to maintain long-term longevity then you're sort of you need to work a bit like a talent scout because there are people that i've spoken to in the last few years where i've seen them at events we've had a drink together and things like that and they said oh i've not brought my first book out yet but i'm i'm doing the rapid release so they're building up three or four books and then straight out the gate they're immediately far more successful than a lot of people I know myself included so you're not necessarily if you want to stay long term it's not always about reaching up you also need to help people below you and I think as obviously because this is about the development of the industry then it's all about diversity so I think like you said there are going to be a lot more people on a similar playing field everyone's got access to the same tools and things like this so you really need to diversify in terms of your IP and your contacts so I got an email just this week from a company that are talking about because I've produced audiobooks of of another non-fiction book that I've got they were talking about possibly adapting it as a course where they would I would license it out and, and they would change it into a course. So there's all these different things that I think you need to be very aware of as an author if you want to go into these extra spaces, because I wouldn't have considered potentially creating a course myself. But if somebody else wants to do it for me and, and I can get money from the license, then then yeah, of course I could do that. And that can maintain the author dream that everybody wants. There's all these, these different avenues. I think the big thing is that you really need to become a person. And this is it's difficult when you spend a lot of time on the internet, and this is why being in person can can be a really strong strategy, because um, I think it's Chris Ducker, the guy who wrote Youpreneur. Youpreneur, yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. Where you essentially want to create a brand that is you, but you are the people's brand because you're a person. So everyone wants to hang around with you because of who you are. And that just means that even if one series doesn't do particularly well or you try to branch out into a different area of business that takes your attention away from something that you were doing really well, there are people that will stick around and, and be your sort of 1,000 true fans and they will stay there with you to keep maintaining your your momentum as an author. I think as long as you build up uh, a brand, an email list, social media and all the rest of it with the idea in mind that it's got to be built around you rather than around a particular idea um, then it, it will stick the course because like I said I brought out uh, that one book that I'm going to be looking into licensing that was on Twitter now I was it was my thing Twitter so I almost got to 100,000 Twitter followers at one point I thought it was the thing that at the time I was in the traditional publishing sphere and it was the thing that everybody said you should do so I just mm. rabidly sort of built a Twitter following and brought a book out on it and all that type of stuff and it, it worked, but it won't work long term because things, particularly in the technological space, they, they very quickly become dated and, and you need to keep yourself as the brand rather than the ideas that you represent because then you can move from project to project without losing people, I think. Fantastic. Really good stuff there. And uh, Chris Duck has been on the show, so people can go back and listen to that episode as well, the Youpreneur. So brilliant. Where can people find you and your books and everything you do online? Okay, so I'd really like to separate my website into the two pen names, but I haven't got around to doing that yet. So everything uh, that I've written is on uh, danielparsonsbooks.com slash networking. I'm currently giving away an author networking travel guide. It was for all the conferences that were open, but it's suddenly not open now that I've got the book. But they, they will be open again in the future, and I'll be adding things on productivity and, and things like that in the future as well. So there'll be lots of good stuff there. Alternatively, you can find me on Twitter. So I'm at DK Parsons Writer, and my books are on all stores in ebook form. I'm getting there in audiobook, and I'm going to be doing print soon. So I'm on Amazon in print, and it will be everywhere else. Fantastic. Thanks so much for your time, Dan. That was great. Thank you. I appreciate it, John. So I hope you found the interview with Dan useful. I certainly enjoyed talking about networking as it's something I struggled with so much at the beginning of my author career. I still remember how lonely I was in Brisbane in those early years in Australia where I used to live and how much this podcast helped in terms of making some online friends, speaking to Americans who were the hub of indie back in the day. And uh, although I didn't really build a physical network until I moved back to the UK in 2011 and started going to conferences. And I certainly, as we talked about, I think going to the same conferences year after year can be really helpful. I also wanted to say that Dan did a great job of pitching his book to me, especially I get so many pitches to come on the show and most of them are not great. But if you have a book on a topic that's useful for authors and something I haven't covered lots before. Um, and I'm particularly interested in craft and mindset and evergreen topics. Then it is worth pitching. And I have a sample pitch email in Audio for Authors in the podcasting section of the book. And of course, you can get that book in the bundle if you don't have it already at storybundle.com forward slash nano, N-A-N-O. And even if this show is not right for you, and look, let's face it, for most authors, this is not the show you want to come on. You want to go on other shows that are more relevant for your audience. You can use that 
uh, template to pitch other shows. And in fact, I did want to ask uh, you guys, and I don't know how many people listen to this end bit. (laughs) I'll ask again at another point. But I'm personally interested on going on other podcasts as a guest, but I want to get outside the writing niche because I feel you've probably heard enough from me in the writing niche, but I'd love to get into other podcasts. If you're a dentist and there's a dentist podcast that might be interested in talking about writing nonfiction or something like that's the type of thing I want to do. So if you do listen to other shows that you think I might be appropriate for, let me know. So next week, I'm talking to Meg Latore about YouTube for authors. And I learned a lot from Meg, even though I've had a YouTube channel since 2008. (laughs) Video continues to be an important part of marketing for many authors. And even if you're just doing Facebook Lives or interviews and you don't want your own channel, I think you'll find it interesting. So happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time. <laughs>